welcome to It Just So Happened. I am Richard Pulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 10th of August. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. So, where are we? Well, it's where Sir Sean Connery worked on a milk round, where Harry Potter was conceived, and a place renowned for its smell, once known as Old Reeky. Yes, it's Edinburgh! <laughs> we are performing the show in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, the largest arts festival in the world, and our venue this afternoon is the space at Surgeons Hall, the headquarters of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, with its own museum, library and archive. Designed by William Henry Playfair and completed in 1832, it's one of many category A-listed buildings in the city. During the Fringe, the space venue hosts four performance spaces and about 100 different shows. And we have an audience in the museum with us today. As the Fringe welcomes audiences of up to 400,000 people each year, so we welcome about one one hundred thousandth of that number to this show. <laughs> so what's drawn in such huge numbers? Well, let me introduce today's panel. We have Angus Coots, Natalie Durkin and Nick Ellery. Uh, now, what do I know about you guys? <laughs> uh, but Angus, I know, is a stand-up comic and does uh, tour guides around the streets of Edinburgh. So do you want to say any more about yourself? So, so as a tour guide, I pretty much walk around Edinburgh and tell people lies about Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> good, easy money. And then at night time, I stand up and tell horrible jokes about my sex life. Wow, <laughs> wow. thank you. And Natalie, what I know about you is you're a West End New Act finalist. And... A get-up stand-up finalist, and you've been seen on the John Bishop show, whatever that means. Yeah, I was in a sketch <laughs> on the John Bishop Whoa, show recently, um, and very funnily, my mum uh, saw my top and she was like, "Oh, that'll be it." And then I had a line, and she was like, "Oh my god, you had a line!" I was like, "Yes, mum, I am oh. shit." <laughs> <laughs> and Nick, you are a stand-up comedian. Yeah, maybe less yeah. of an inquisitive tone when you say that. <laughs> uh, because I've only just met you. So okay, so. fine. I'm a, I'm a stand-up comedian, and since we're talking uh, credits and and things, I was the uh, 2018-2017 Leicester Square Theatre Old Comedian of the Year. Ooh. And just to clarify, to uh, enter the Old Comedian of the Year competition, you had to be over 35. <laughs> <laughs> so most of the audience would have been able to enter the old community. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Uh, straight over to Angus now for your On This Day piece. Okay, so, um, do we have any Americans in just now? Any of you guys from the States? Okay, cool, this is going to go over everyone's heads, great. Uh, but it was in 1821, on the 10th of August, that Missouri was made a state, I know, the sexiest of all the states. Uh, try and contain yourselves. Um, Missouri is an interesting state because uh, I really thought I only knew like two things about it, and that was like Mark Twain and Gone Girl. That was it. Turns out it's got a lot more going on for it though as well. Um, I don't, do you know Brad Pitt's from Missouri? Did you know that? Nope. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> is anyone into the wrestling? You know, like the the wrestling a little bit. Kane, Kane, you know the Undertaker's brother. Yeah. He's from Missouri. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? It's class. Um, the, uh, the, the crazy thing about Missouri as well is that it's got a really big city that's really famous and it's got a very confusing name. Kansas City is not in Kansas. 
It's in Missouri. Uh, well, parts of it's in Kansas. It kind of sits on the border. It's very silly. But that's America for you. America's a weird country, isn't it? Yes. Like, uh, do you guys know America's a weird country? I know we have no Americans in, but we are aware that it's a bit of a strange country. Yeah, it's a, bit of a strange place. Uh, the weirdest thing about America, I've found, is that they don't really know how to hate properly. I see some confusion on some of your faces. You're thinking, but Angus, they know how to hate poor people and minorities. And do you know what? They're actually quite good at that. Uh, what they're bad at is sports hate, right? Because I went to a basketball game in New York City. I did not ever go to Missouri, to be honest. I'm just using it to get into this. Uh, I went to this basketball game in New York City, and I was expecting this cauldron of hatred. You know, it's a tough town, New York City, hard town. What I got was a bunch of Yanks going, defense, defense. Who's being intimidated by that? <laughs> She takes someone to a football match in Scotland. What they might hear someone shout is, I hope your kids die in front of you at Christmas. <laughs> and you, you might hear that if you sit next to me, because I, I said that. Uh, I said it, I meant it. It was an under-16s game. My little brother's still not speaking to me, but I missed a penalty, you know. Um, in, oh, I've got, I've got, I did make one other note about Missouri. This is an interesting one. Uh, we're going back a little bit of time here. Yeah, 1932. 1932, a 5.1-kilogram meteorite smashed into Missouri. 5.1 kilogram meteorite smashed into Missouri, broken a few fragments, and it killed something. A cow. <laughs> so, you know, that's quite exciting as well. So there you go, Missouri, 24th state, on this day, 1821. There you go. Thank you, Angus. <laughs> so I'm going to do a little, a couple of on-this-day pieces between the panellists. So this is my first one. I'm going to ask some questions to the panellists, so hope you're on your toes here. So the first question, in what year did the Louvre Museum in Paris officially open? I know this because it was during the uh, American Revolution, I think. So I'm thinking 1789? Oh, that is extremely close. So, Seven, yes. 1785? Going the wrong way. I've got <laughs> literally no clue. How are you even pretending yeah. to guess? Yeah. So, I mean, I honestly thought it was a lot more recent, but it was actually opened on this day, 10th of August, in 1793. Oh. So it was quite a long time ago. That'll be why I thought that, because I was looking at a Wikipedia article about oh. August 10th earlier on. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> it's opened with an exhibition of 537 paintings. And where did the majority of those works come from? Stolen. Oh. They've got to have been stolen. Mm. France. France in 1793. Yeah, my guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, personal collection. Of, uh, is this post-revolution? Yeah, oh, that would be, yeah. Yes, yeah, so it was, it was royal and confiscated church property. It is the world's biggest and most visited museum. If you were to spend just 30 seconds on each piece of art in the Louvre, it would still take you 100 days to get through them all. The museum holds an estimated 380,000 pieces of art, of which about 10% are on public display. What is the Louvre's most visited painting? Mona Lisa. It's the Mona Lisa, yeah. It's been on permanent display at the Louvre in Paris since 1797. When was it painted, and who is the painting subject? Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Was it his? Uh, was it an employee of his? Was uh, the subject uh, a maid or something like that? I know she wasn't. She wasn't high status, was she? Well, I'm going to disappoint you actually, Nick, because it's uh, it was actually a noble woman called Lisa Gerardini. I can't actually tell you much about her, but she was a noble woman rather than a maid. So I'm wrong. Yeah. I, I didn't want to. Just say it. Put it so harshly. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm more importantly, British. when I said Lisa, that means I was right. 
yes, Lisa. Sorry, yes, I was, I was, I was looking at you sceptically. Yeah. She was called Lisa, so if there was points, you get a point. That's not points. In my mind, there are. <laughs> it was believed to have been painted between 1503 and 1506 for quite some time, but then Leonardo, it, it's worked out, may have continued working on it as late as 1517, so it could have taken a process of 14 years. It was acquired by King Francis I of France and is now the property of the French Republic. Mm. Now, we're all very familiar with the Mona Lisa. How big do you think the painting is? Maybe using your hands or... Using inches and A three. I thought it was a touch smaller than that. I thought it was yeah. a, between A four and A three. It's like a, it's quite big. It, it is actually quite small. It's only so in old money it's thirty by twenty one inches, in new money seventy seven by fifty three centimeters. Uh, again, I imagined it was a much bigger thing, especially if it took fourteen years to paint. You would have thought, yeah. but that's the way it is. So the nineteen eleven theft of the Mona Lisa and its subsequent return was reported worldwide. And that led to the massive increase in public recognition of the painting. Up until that point, people weren't actually that fussed about it. During the 20th century, of course, it was an object for mass reproduction, merchandising, lampooning and speculation, and was claimed to have been reproduced in 300 paintings and 2,000 different advertisements. And now it's over to you, Natalie, for your honest piece. Nothing, hello. Uh, today my fact is that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on this day, on the 10th of August in 1980, was sworn into the Supreme Court. Um, if you don't know who she was, she was pretty awesome badass. Um, Supreme Court Justice, who fought for women's rights, etc, etc. Um, and yeah, I, like when I saw this fact, so <laughs> my friend actually suggested this fact to me. And it's because um, when I am feeling less than or like, you know, that I'm not good enough for the world. My friends ask me, what would RBG do? Um, so I pretend that I've got a little Ruth Bader Ginsburg on my shoulder. <laughs> and she empowers me to be stronger in my life. The worst thing is this is 100% true. Um, yeah, so that's that's my Ruth Bader Ginsburg look. But I found out that that's not her name. Her name's not Ruth. No. Her name's Joan. And she changed it, not for any fun reason, but because... There was just too many Jones in her class. So she just went, oh, I'll be Ruth instead. I'm like, I did meet a kid on the bus, though, the other day called Zed. And I realised at that point that I was old. Because <laughs> I was like, sorry, what? Your name is what? <coughs> Zed? That's not real, is it? No. Um, so that was one of my facts. Um, the other thing I found out about her when I was researching was that um, she was known for, like, using colloquialisms in Supreme Court and I just I like I really imagine her doing it in her American accent and then swearing in Cockney because that's that's how I feel like she would come across just being like quite quite prim and proper and then swearing in Cockney um, and then she was also the first person um, on the Supreme Justice to officiate a same-sex wedding which I think is quite nice and I went on my first ever date with a girl last year you're not as excited as I was. I went on my first ever date with a girl last year. Ooh. Thank you. And I had like I had a really nice time. Um, but mid-sex, she stroked me on the arm and said, it's like having sex with a man, <laughs> but softer. And I was like, what do you mean softer? Not a leading kitchen towel brand. Uh, like having sex with a man, but 70% more absorbent. Uh, but I am 30% cheaper. That was just for me. And this man who also laughed. Thank you. <laughs> uh, 
And so yeah, that's that's my same sex experience. But I think the problem with with Bader Ginsburg is I feel like she's a little bit too good at everything. Do you know what I mean? She she's one of those women that make me feel like I can't even do my shopping properly. Like so like my fridge is like a really dangerous game of MasterChef. You know, when you look in it's like, oh, what can I make with a dried cucumber <laughs> and some dodgy chicken and a flaky bit of cheese? So then, and then, like, because I do like MasterChef, I do attempt to, um, like, make things better. And I'm always like, oh, well, I've got to put some garnish on, haven't I? So I, um, I've got some, yeah, well, my uh, cactus keeps getting skinnier. <laughs> Just do it with my cactus. Um, and the last thing about Ruth Bader, so she also, on top of being, like, an absolute badass, fighting for women's rights, doing all of that amazing shit, she also had two kids. Can you imagine doing that and having two children? My mum keeps asking me why I don't have kids left yet, and I keep being like, well, because they're worse than terrorists. But she doesn't like that as a response. Um, but yeah, I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was stubborn off to the end. She just refused to die. I like that vibe. And I just think she's awesome. And that's my information about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Thank you, Natalie. <laughs> so, my second piece. Um, questions to the panel. Which US president was born on this day in 1874? It was the... Hoover man. Yes. If there were points, you'd be getting points. Yeah. Yes. So we've got Not Henry Hoover, but Herbert Hoover. Oh. Yeah. So it's from the Louvre to the Hoover, uh, <laughs> with the with the sections in. Hoover won the 1928 U.S. presidential election, and as of the 2020 election, this is the last time, and I still can't quite get my head around this. It's the last time that the party of the incumbent president won, without their nominee being the incumbent president or the incumbent vice president. I think I just about get that. But <laughs> where does Herbert Hoover rank in critical assessment of his presidency by historians and political scientists? Quite low. Like the worst ever. Not the worst ever. You remember the last one? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he's, he was ranked as one of the worst presidents in US history. He was the last Republican to win a presidential election until 1952. So he, he, did, he did badly for the Republicans. Because they all did, they ended up in Hoovervilles, didn't they? In Hoovervilles? Yeah, they were shanty towns outside because people oh, couldn't so afford things, oh, so they called them Hoovervilles. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realise that. Okay, thank you. Did you not do something like set up the CIA or something like that as well? Uh, I think you're thinking of a relative of his, as in uh, Edgar Hoover. That's the one. Yeah. See, I know some stuff. So what happened during his first year in office which meant him quickly losing the popularity that he had when he first got elected? Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> no, you're getting mixed up now. So he got, uh, Hoover got elected in 1928. So wait, was that the thing that caused the Hoover bills? The big crash? Yes, so it, that's Depression. essentially what happened, yes. So the stock market crashed in 29, signalling the onset of the Great Depression. Hoover staunchly opposed any intervention from the federal government in the US economy, saying economic depression cannot be cured by legislative action or executive pronouncement. Uh, so, toe up to Rishi, Rishi Sunak. I can't speak to him. Um, who did Hoover scapegoat for the depression? Uh, what is it the Jews? Well, you, you're along the right lines. Basically, me Mexicans, actually. Uh, so foreigners. I don't think they're the same as Jews. In, but in the sense that it's an, another tribe or another. It's not you know, it's Yeah, not I'm not saying there's a similarity between the two. He instituted poli policies 
on sponsored programs of repatriation and deportation to Mexico. It wasn't Rwanda, but it was Mexico in this case. By 1932, the Republican expectations for that year's election were so bleak that Hoover faced no serious opposition for renomination at the Republican National Convention because they knew they were going to lose. In his campaign trips around the country, Hoover was so unpopular he was faced with hostile crowds. His train and motorcades were pelted with eggs and rotten fruit. He was often heckled while speaking, and on several occasions the Secret Service halted attempts to hurt him, including capturing one man nearing Hoover carrying sticks of dynamite, and another already having removed several spikes from the rails in front of the President's train. So, question again, who did Hoover lose the 1932 election to? Well, I want to say yeah. Roosevelt. Uh, FDR? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Franklin. It's like you're trying to trick me Roosevelt. over, you're trying to catch us no, 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 that's right. Hoover only carried six states and lost 59 to 472 in the Electoral College, so quite a landslide. Roosevelt was the first Democrat in 80 years to win an outright majority in the popular and electoral votes, the last one being Franklin Pierce in 1852. Hoover was the last incumbent president to lose re-election until Gerald Ford in 1974. Um, I have to admit, I didn't know much about this guy before I did the research, but there are two quotes from him uh, that kind of stand the test of time in a way. The first one is quite nice, I think. About the time we think we can make ends meet, somebody moves the ends. <laughs> I think that's quite relevant to today. And the second one is, the only trouble with capitalism is capitalists. They're too damn greedy. <laughs> that's from Hoover. Yeah, the Republican. A Republican, yeah. a conservative. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird that's quite a socialist way of looking at the world. Mm. Mm. So, over to you, Nick, for your understatements. Okay. Uh, this, is, this is an important day for guitar. Is there anyone here who plays guitar? Like, <laughs> I think most men play a bit of guitar, <laughs> you know. It's very, very common. Uh, this is this is guitar related. So I've, I've always wanted to play guitar ever since I was younger. My family loved the Rolling Stones, right? We, my, I've got five brothers. My parents love the Stones. I love the Stones. All my brothers love the Stones. It's like the family band. So I grew up with like electric guitar being a big part of my life. Um, I've actually, I've got every Rolling Stones album from 1963 to 1989. Um, let me rephrase that. Does anyone want to buy every stone? <laughs> <laughs> They're not all good. I realise that now, but when I was younger, I just loved them. I'd love everything they did. I thought they were just magic. And then in 1989, they uh, released an album called Steel Wheels. And I don't know who remembers this anyway. I remember I got the album at the time. I listened to it constantly for a bit, as you do when you're really in, you know, infatuated with a band. And I got into the album. And then one day at work, a fellow said to me, he said, Nick, what's wrong? You just seem tired lately. And I said, you know, mate, between the, the day job and pretending to enjoy this album, I'm just exhausted all the time. Because <laughs> it was a horrible album. It was a horrible album. But I love the Stones, so I convinced myself that it was a, a good thing. And he was like, well, why did you expect a band who's been going for 30-something years to produce a good album in 1989? And I go, well, they, I, I read a review of it that was good. Gave it five stars. He said, where was the review? In a magazine. But what was the name of the magazine? Rolling Stone magazine. <laughs> it may not have been entirely impartial. So the story, the electric guitar related fact for today, involves two people called uh, George Beaumont 
and Adolf Rickenbacker. So we already know roughly what time scale this is happening in, because no one got called Adolf after a certain <laughs> date, did they? It's like after the 60s, no children were, were christened napalm for some reason. Um, <laughs> politically incorrect. Uh, so on this day in 1937, George Beaumont and Adolf Rickenbacker received a, the patent for what was they what was technically referred to as the Rickenbacker Electro A22, which was the first electric guitar. It was the first patented electric guitar. And at the time, it was essentially a, um, a neck fretboard with a, a small body on it, with a pickup on it. Because unlike an acoustic guitar, see, this, what happened was, if you can imagine this, once upon a time, there was only acoustic guitar, and then suddenly, guitarists were having trouble being heard over their bands. And if you know guitarists, you know that wasn't going to last very long. Something had to be done about that. And so the electric guitar was invented, and it was just a fretboard, and it had a little round thing there with a pickup on it. And so it looked presented like that. That was the first electric guitar. And guitars are known for like their kind of sexy branding and promotion of them. Um, so does anyone know what this first electric guitar was labeled by the company? Is the frying pan. Because <laughs> it just had a big old handle and a tiny little round bit on it there, and they're like, yeah. What do I, and let's face it, it I was going to say, what, what do dudes really want? And it is mostly dudes that were playing guitar back then. And they just go, what, what, what's going to get dudes excited to play this instrument? A frying pan. Let's get that out there. So they did a couple, made a couple of thousand of those from 37 to 39. And they got a moderate, moderate amount of involvement. And the electric guitar didn't really pick up massively. Until the 50s, Fender created the uh, Fender Esquire, which was a fairly business-like looking guitar, but it had a larger wooden body on it. And then, uh, late 50s, Fender created the Stratocaster, which is probably the most famous body shape we know. Now the thing is, the frying pan was all you need to make an electric guitar sound like an electric guitar. You don't need all the rest of that body. A Stratocaster guitar, all that shape, all the sexy lines, totally unnecessary, completely aesthetic. They just knew that design was going to get guys just going like, oh my god, I have to have one of those. And they call it a Stratocaster because it's exciting and futuristic. And then they have names like the Les Paul Deluxe or, or the, the, the Jazz Master rather than the Frying Pan, which wasn't very, wasn't too sexy. Now, I always wanted to play guitar and I always just thought I wanted to play guitar because I love the sound of guitar. You know? So they really... The electric guitar, the way that it looked, was kind of unnecessary, all that extra wood. And in the 70s and 80s, companies like Steinberger and uh, Parker produced what were provably better instruments that didn't have all that timber around them. Steinberger created a guitar that was essentially just a black square here, the neck, and no, he no headboard up here. So it was just very functional, but they sounded great. And they stayed in tune. They were demonstrably better instruments than the classic electric guitar. And the guitar playing public just en masse went, nah, we want the one that looks like a woman. Okay. <laughs> That's still somehow phallic as well. So they still love that classic design. And I always wanted a, I learned to play guitar, and I bought a Rickenbacker guitar in Australia in uh, 1992. And you don't see them very often out there because they're American, so they don't make it over to Australia that much, especially back then. And uh, it was a 12-string Rickenbacker guitar, and it was beautiful, and it sounded amazing. And the problem was, 
12 string guitar is quite hard to play and I wasn't a good player. So I opened the case and it had the Rickenbacker logo there and it had the contact details to the Rickenbacker company in California. So I called the Rickenbacker company in California from Brisbane, Australia and I asked, I asked to speak to Ed Fury who was the fella who'd signed off on my guitar. And me in Australia spoke to the guy who'd signed off of the Rickenbacker guitar I'd bought. And I said, mate, I want to take the six extra strings off to turn this into a six, six strings. Is that okay? And he's like, well, we made this guitar as, as a 12 string. Why would, you, why would you do such a thing? I said, no, I just want it to be a six string. And he said, well, you can just get a six string. Just buy a six string Rickenbacker rather than adapt a 12 string to this. And I had to say to him, yeah, but... But this one's red. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to find another red one. So I've had to modify this one. So as much as I thought I was above it all, I was actually as guilty of uh, buying into the aesthetics of the sexy electric guitar um, as much as anyone else. So that is my uh, very extended bit of fact for this day. Quite a few there. So now we come to the second half of the show where we uncover some of the history of Edinburgh. As our venue today is Surgeon's Hall, it seems only fitting to explore some of the history of surgery in the city. So, question to the panel. When do you think the first legal dissection carried out in Scotland under Scottish law took place? 1964. 1964? Yeah. Oh, I didn't see that. We were talking about legal human dissection. I should say human dissection, yes. Someone did point that out yesterday. <laughs> what did you say? I think it's way... Yeah, you just you're just there because it was 1702. Oh. 1702. Um, Scottish law allowed for the purposes of anatomical research the dissection of bodies in cases where the individual had died in prison or committed suicide. The first person to be dissected. He was called David Miles, and he was executed on 27th of November 1702 for incest. His sister bore his child, and the village found the corpse on the middenhoof. Even though they claimed it was dead at birth, the bloke was done and hanged, and so was his sister, and his body was authorised to be dissected. Now, no one had carried a corpse legally from the gallows to the cutting tables before, so what kind of trade of person do you think got that job? The Fireman? Dustbin man? Dustbin man? I know the answer. <laughs> Chimney sweeps, isn't it? Chimney sweeps, yes. For some reason. Oh, he's he's a, I was just going to say, yeah. he's a tour guide. That's cheating. It is cheating, yes. That's why I come here. Can we pick a different city that he doesn't know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd have to move the show somewhere else. Yeah, but, uh, it does It does travel around. So. Yeah, the chimney sweeps, though, were whinging about the cost of the lead weights, which were required to hold the cloth down over the corpse as they moved it through the city in a seemly manner which is a bit odd, given that half the city had already turned up to watch the guy being executed. Why bother about propriety after that? Apologies to everyone who might have a little bit of a weak stomach as we get into the topic of dissection sort. But um, how long do you think that very first dissection took, given that it was a, a new opportunity to have a look inside a human being? It's going to be quite soon, otherwise it was weird, wasn't it? Yes, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Say mm. three days. Mm. Yeah, that seems entirely reasonable, doesn't it? But it actually took them nine days. 
different medical men from the Royal College of Surgeons demonstrated upon it each day. So they began with a general discourse of the body before moving on to an inspection of key organs. And I won't go into those details. But basically, basically, they were just left with the hands and feet after the end of nine days. Uh, the dissecting room did have an open wall at the back to try and keep the body cool, and it was November, but even then, I think nine days was a bit... Yes. So the Scottish Enlightenment in the early 19th century saw Sir James Young Simpson discover chloroform anaesthesia, and Dr Joseph Lister pioneer the use of antiseptic during surgery. But who was Dr Robert Knox? What do you think? I don't know. I was going to say an abortion, but that's... Uh, I would say the first hairdresser. Oh. Uh, <laughs> they used to be the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Same, same like people used to practice. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, uh, uh, the bleeding. yeah, that's what the red and the white pole is. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, he was the guy that uh, ran the anatomy classes at Edinburgh University's uh, medical school. Yeah. Um, so he actually graduated from the university in 1814. He joined the army and was posted to Brussels and attended the wounded from the Battle of Waterloo. But by 1822, he was a key force in establishing the Museum of Anatomy and Pathology at the College of Surgeons. And he set up the major anatomical school where he was famed for his gory lectures, which he and his colleagues dissected bodies as part of their research. But this Dr. Knox, although he had this sort of eminent position in Edinburgh society and was looked up to as this great lecturer. He had a bit of a dodgy kind of character and personality, shall we say, so here's some facts about him. He was remembered at the Royal High School of Edinburgh where he attended. He was being remembered as a bully who thrashed his contemporaries. He actually failed his anatomy exam and had to retake it. And he was obsessed with men's head sizes. Who's so, not? So as part of his research into men's head sizes, he discovered that the heads of men in Glasgow and Edinburgh were different sizes, and Glasgow men had bigger hat sizes. So how would you interpret this piece of scientific information? Bigger heads are smarter. Um, bigger heads are smarter, okay. Yeah. I don't know, I was surprised the other day when somebody pointed out that they, and they had a, this man said, that, I've got a tiny head. Well, how tiny can it be? And he took off his hat and put it on my head. And wow, he had no chance of getting down. And so I presume he had a small head, but he still had like full motor control and <laughs> like thinking capability. Um, so I guess, was it the water in one town that affected the... Oh, I, I, I don't know the real reason. Oh, okay. Um, but but he, he interpreted the different hat sizes as meaning that um, Glasgow men needed bigger headspace for all that engineering kind of stuff that they do over there. But the Edinburgh brains were much sort of smarter and refined and they didn't need to be as big as a result. So that was his interpretation of this. Yeah, exactly. I'm, 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 I'm saying he was a weird guy. Uh, it gets worse, I'm afraid. He was racially hostile to Highland Scots, Welsh people, and especially to Irish Celts. And he openly advocated their ethnic cleansing at the time of the Great Famine. Well, as somebody from the north of Scotland, that means he's not a good guy. Okay. I feel guy. personally attacked here. I don't think you need to be from north of Scotland to decide he's not a good guy. But <laughs> I know, but he was calling for my people to be ethnically cleansed, you know. Yeah. I mean, um, I was on the fence until you said that. Yeah, now you've come down, <laughs> come down on his side. Now. Like, Actually, you know, had some good ideas, you know. Yeah. Now, the Judgment of Death Act of 1823 decreased the number of sentences punishable by death, just as the need to train medical students was growing. 
and Knox's teaching methods required a ratio of about one cadaver per student. So what happened in, in particular in Edinburgh when the supply of bodies could no longer keep up with demand? Uh, grave robbers. Grave robbers, yes. I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna come in real hard just now and say that grave robbers didn't sell bodies. Grave robbers stole things from bodies. So they stole things like jewellery and clothes and things like that. We're thinking about body snatchers. Oh. That's right, we're learning. Yeah. And, then, and then didn't Burke and Hare kill them all? Mm, we're coming to that. Coming oh, yes. Yeah. yes. So, so. <laughs> There's a, another film with Robert Carlyle and uh, Johnny Lee Miller? Or was that Burke and Hare? Burke and Hare, the film, was with uh, Simon Pegg and uh, yeah, Andy Serkis. Andy Serkis, yeah. 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 Learning a lot about history <laughs> today. And films. It's going off on the tangent. So, who were the resurrectionists then? Were they so, they were the body snatchers. They were the body snatchers. Yeah, that was the name they gave yes. themselves yes. because the law was quite clear. Like, they, they said they weren't stealing anything, right? So, if you're like grave robbing, you're stealing, that's quite a low thing to do to steal from the dead. But they said nobody owns a dead body, so yeah. we're resurrecting them and then using them again. So, we can't be classed as thieves. And the law was like kind of okay with that. <laughs> So the, the only illegal thing was disturbing the grave, but stealing, mm. stealing a body wasn't because it didn't actually belong to anyone. Yeah. yeah. Now, okay, so if you were a rich family and you had a relative who'd just been uh, put in the ground, who, who was dead, hopefully, uh, how would you go about maybe stopping these resurrectionists from digging up your relative? Uh, if what you sort of things could you use? rich, you'd build a big mausoleum. Right, like mm. a big house for your dead, but that's quite pricey. Like I'm a millennial, yeah. so I'm unlikely to own a house for myself, let alone my dead relatives. Yes, so, um, it probably wasn't achievable for most of them. Yeah. Did they get like a guard cat? Well, that's not as daft as it sounds. They they actually had watchtowers in some of the cemeteries, which you can still see today if you look around Edinburgh. So they basically people watching, literally watching <coughs> over the graves to see that the graves weren't being robbed. Comedian and tour guide Daniel Downey, who was on the panel a few days ago when we covered the subjects, mentioned the fact that the phrase graveyard shift comes from that, which I didn't know before, which was quite interesting. Uh, another method was that families simply purchased heavy stone slabs and put those over graves, so it just became difficult then for anyone to dig underneath and kind of get them up. And, and similar to mausoleums, there was the more safe slide, the grave cages. Yeah, so if yeah. you go to the National Museum of Scotland, you'll find these big kind of metal coffins. And what you would do is you put the coffin in there and lock it up and then leave it there because then they'll be able to get into it. Or if you go to even better, Greyfriars Kirkyard, you know, one with the dog, the little dog yeah, that definitely right. existed. Yeah. Um, you were there this morning? Yesterday. Yes, yeah. it's very pretty, isn't it? Yeah. One of my favourite places. But you might notice around the back of it, there's this kind of cage. Yeah. You know? That's that. You'd bury them in there and you'd leave them just so long so they were like no use to the medical school. Yeah. Then oh. move it to his proper grave. Incidentally, Americans who experienced something similar later in the 1800s came up with some well suitably American solutions. So, Philip Clover, for example, patented the coffin torpedo in 1878, which would fire out a lethal blast of lead balls when the lid of a coffin was fired <laughs> open. Not only that, uh, Thomas Howell he patented a shell buried under a coffin and wired, so if thieves triggered it, it would effectively set off a landmine. Hmm. Uh, one advertisement for the Howell torpedo read, Sleep well, sweet angel, let no fears of ghouls disturb thy rest, for above thy shrouded form lies a torpedo, 
ready to make mincemeat of anyone who attempts to convey you to the pickling vat. Anyway, we're meant to be talking about Edinburgh. So, back in uh, Edinburgh in 1827, there were two Irish immigrants called William Hare and William Burke, as we've already alluded to. William Hare was owed £4 in rent by a fellow lodger, an army pensioner named Old Donald, when he died. One of Knox's students gave Hare a tip-off that he would be well paid if he delivered the corpse to Knox, which he did, and he received £7 and 10 shillings. What was this inevitably leading to? He killed them all. He start, they, they started killing people so they could provide fresh bodies and get paid for it. But hang on a minute. If you started giving bodies of people you killed, wouldn't they suspect that something was wrong? Probably. Mm. So how did they get their meat? Other people to kill them? No, 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 no. So they bribed a doctor. You need to find a way of killing people that doesn't look too suspicious. Chloroform. Uh, yeah, you're kind of along the right kind of lines. So their modus operandi was suffocation. And I, I, I believe you know a bit about this. I, I do. This is <laughs> So I've told Richard the story before, and I'm really sorry, I'm about to lower the tone massively. Um, but uh, Burking, it's named after William Burke, um, and what he would do is he would get two fingers, uh, they'd get their victims very drunk, they'd be quite low-class people, you know, like prostitutes and addicts, homeless people, people that have come in to see a history podcast getting recorded, you know, whatever. Um, and they'd get them very drunk, and they'd use two fingers to hold their nose shut, and his thumb, hook their jaw shut. Hair would then lie across them. Uh, and I've told the story countless times on tours uh, to anyone that's been interested. Um, and then one time I was doing a tour and there was this young Australian girl. She uh, she was very flirty with me because, you know, obviously. And uh, we won't go into any details, but we didn't have back at my house, right? Okay. And she said that she thought it would be hot if I burked her while we were... Yeah, let's move on. Um, Presumably not burked. Uh, as in the full burking. Four... Um, at 40 yeah. in the right. afternoon. Like... I mean, we can it, give it a bash if you want. It, 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 it worked for them, it seems. Uh, they managed to murder 16 people. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I feel like my jaw would be, uh, unless you had particularly strong grip. Did you say that, 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 that um, Burke and Hare got them drunk? Very first? drunk, yeah, yeah. I didn't mention that bit. Okay, yeah. so they're already like. They were intoxicated, yeah. Right. yeah first. So that was the. That's how they went about it. So they murdered a total of 16 people that we know about. Uh, normally it was one body at a time, so they would take the body in a tea chest and deliver them to Knox's students, not directly to Knox himself. Although at one point they murdered two lodgers at the same time, <coughs> described by Burke as an old woman and a dumb boy, her grandson. So the tea chest they normally used was too small. So they transferred the corpses to a herring barrel, loaded it onto a cart, but Hare's horse refused to pull the heavy load any further than grass market, and a porter had to be called to help transport the container. Once Hare had returned home, he took the anger out on the horse and shot it dead. Uh, Burke seemed more troubled than Hare by the pair's actions. Author George McGregor wrote, When he wakened, sometimes in fright, he would take a draught of the bottle, often to the extent of half of its contents at a time, and that induced sleep, or rather stupor. So what went wrong? How were they discovered? They'd murdered 16 people in the space of 10 months. And then it kind of went wrong, it's unravelled. Um, spent their earnings on like flashy cars and stuff. 
the, the equivalent of yes, they, they were receiving between eight and ten pounds each time within the space of ten months, and they were they were living the living the life of Riley. Is that the right phrase? Ultimately, what went wrong? That how were they discovered? People heard them killing the last person they killed. So they've gone after this uh, old Irish prostitute, and you'll have to believe me on this, but I actually don't have a great deal of experience with old Irish prostitutes. <laughs> uh, I do know a couple of things, though. Like, uh, first of all, I know they can drink, uh, so they tried to get her drunk, and she outdrank them. Um, <laughs> and then they went, right, let's try and kill her, and this is the other thing I know about them, they can fight, and she kicked fuck out of them. Um, <laughs> eventually, Burke did actually get quite lucky. I think the story I heard, at least, was he had a fire poker, and he managed to wrap her in the back of her head and killed her, but people had heard, and burst, and they found her body kind of stashed away, but they were caught for that. Okay. The story I heard was that because it was a lodging house, there was a, a couple who were looking to lodge there, and uh, there was a body hidden under the bed in the room ah. they were going to get. So they said, um, oh, yeah, uh, we'll take your money, but you can't go in the room just now. So it's a bit like arriving early at an Airbnb or something. <laughs> but this couple's suspicions were aroused. It's like, well, what, you know, what's going on? So at the first opportunity, they had a sneaky peek into the room and saw the body, and they shouted for the police. So... Different stories, I guess. Tour guys tell uh, lies. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if my story that I've heard is true either. Now, the, the problem was for the police was that although they, they'd found this body, they actually had no way of connecting Burke and Hare to the disappearance of a total of 16 people who, turns out, had been murdered. So how were they eventually brought to trial? And they flea-bound in one of them? One snitched on the other, basically, yeah. So it's called... Hair on Burke? Yes. I was I have to think about that one. <laughs> so Hair on Burke, yeah. So called Turning King's Evidence. Ooh. So Burke ended up being hanged and Hare ended up getting off scot-free, which seems remarkable enough. Hare thought he could get away in disguise, but he was spotted on the coach going south towards Dumfries because the court case had been so popular. Uh, so many people had got an interest in the case that he, he was recognised. So the police had to kind of get the mob away from him and they sneaked him off in the dead of night and set him <coughs> off on the road towards England. And that's the last that anyone ever heard of him. So who knows what he got up to after that. But what happened to Burke uh, after he was executed? <laughs> Somebody. He was dissected, yeah. And what happened to his skeleton? It's on display in the museum, so you can see his body. Which museum? This museum. This one. This ah, one. Ah, cool. Yeah, so you can saw. Yeah. There's another museum though. Yeah. Uh, this is one of my favourite things about William Burke. There's one more museum. If you go to Victoria Street between George IV Bridge and the Grass Market, but halfway down there's a Katie's and Witchery Shop. Uh, go in there. They run tours, rival tours to what I do. So don't book one. <laughs> um, but uh, they've got the William Burke Museum in there, and it's it's a bit of. Like, I think they've got a bit of a brass neck calling themselves a museum, to be honest. They've got one artifact in it, but it's a good one. It's a wee coin purse made up of part of William Burke. And all I'm going to tell you is that you can fit a lot more in that coin purse on a warm day than you can <laughs> on a cold one. And if you want to see that, then, you know, you do different things for me when I go on holiday, but knock yourselves out. <laughs> you can check out the Katie's and Winter Shop, the William Burke Museum. Were there, were there other body parts of his that ended up elsewhere? Yeah, in the museum yeah. here, there's a bit about Dr. Knox and Birkenhair, because like, it was quite 
there was a quite a big trial because it changed the law quite a bit. Uh, I think the Anatomy Act came in quite soon afterwards, um, based in part because of this. Um, so like parts of them were used for making souvenirs, so like that that they managed to buy. But in the museum here, there's also a little pocket, we've got a little pocket diary bound in leather. It's bound in Burke leather. You check out the museum here, it's gross, but I mean, like, like just jar after jar of bits of people, you know, that kind of thing. If that's your sort of thing. If it's not your sort of thing, I apologise, because <laughs> that was the topic for the show. We're kind of almost out of time, so just finally, how are Burke and Hare commemorated in Edinburgh? Oh, I think I saw it on a street the other day. There's, um, it's a, there's a strip club, isn't it? There is. I saw it. I was like, oh. So yes, that's how Edinburgh celebrates Birkenhead. Hare. It used celebrates. to be a normal bar, and then it changed into a strip club. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. If, I've not seen anything about this. Are there any Edinburgh people in today? Uh, Richard, you're probably closest in in Fife, yeah. But um, mm. I think I saw someone recently that said the council was banning them. Strip clubs were going to be banned because it's not. It's not my. Is this one of the? In the pubic triangle, yes. Yes. So there's an area. Got three right next to each other. Yeah. The pubic triangle, which is which is terrible and not funny whatsoever. It's a little. It's a little funny. I did not know that it's about the pubic triangle. Yeah, you walked through earlier on. You're hanging out there. You saw the Birkin hair in the street. You were they were there. Birkin hair is one of them. I don't know what are the other two. Uh, the Western <laughs> and Showgirls. I don't know why I know that, but... Yeah. <laughs> I know why you know that. Right, we're just already starting to... It does tie back to your story, though, about spending time in the pubic triangle. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a rhyme which circulated around Edinburgh, and apologies for my bad Scots, but it goes, Up the close and doon the stair, Button Ben with Birkin hair, Burke's the butcher, Hair's the thief, Knocks the boy that buys the beef. And the lodging house where the people were murdered is now on a site occupied by Argyle House and Lady Lawson Street. So if you head up the grass markets past Westport, it's the 70s building on the right-hand side. That's where Tanner's Close used to be. 100 yards further on, you get to the pubic triangle. So really just want to thank the panel today. Thank you for coming along to Angus Coots, Natalie Durkin and Nick Ellery. And I must thank the Edinburgh Festival Fringe and the Space at Surgeons Hall for hosting us today. The next show will be in the space, same time again tomorrow, 11th of August, if you uh, want to get some more. Uh, I have a final on this day piece, which is for, and I, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but it's Abai Kunan Bayuli, born 10th of August 1845, who was a Kazakh poet, composer and theologian philosopher. He was voted fifth in a poll of the most significant and famous citizens of Kazakhstan, mm. whose names are now associated with the achievements of the country. He translated into Kazakh the works of Russian and European authors, mostly for the first time. Here are three sayings from his book of words on which to end the show. So number one, while you, while you are seeking happiness, everybody wishes you well. But once you have attained it, your only well-wisher is yourself. Number two, a false friend is like a shadow. When the sun shines on you, you can't get rid of him. But when clouds gather over you, he is nowhere to be seen. And number three, who among us has not known trouble? Only the weak lose hope. Nothing in this world is immutable, and misfortune cannot last forever. Does not the bountiful and blossoming spring follow the harsh winter? So, let's go out and see the summer outside again. Thank you for coming to the show, and goodbye. <laughs>